You're listening to Trek FM. There was a little bar in Mill Valley where all the Starfleet trainees used to go. The 602 Club. You know it. <laughs> I was there more times than I can remember. Qui-Gon Jinn would never join you. Don't be so sure, my young Jedi. You forget that he was once my apprentice, just as you were once his. He knew all about the corruption in the Senate, but he would never have gone along with it if he had learned the truth as I have. The truth? The truth. What if I told you that the Republic was now under the control of the Dark Lord of the Sith? No, that's not possible. The Jedi would be aware of it. The dark side of the Force has clouded their vision, my friend. Hundreds of senators are now under the influence of a Sith Lord called Darth Sidious. I don't believe you. The Viceroy of the Trade Federation was once in league with this Darth Sidious. But he was betrayed ten years ago by the Dark Lord. He came to me for help. He told me everything. You must join me, Obi-Wan. And together, we will destroy the Sith. I will never join you, Dooku. It may be difficult to secure your release. Well, welcome everyone to Trek FM's local watering hole. I am so excited to be here tonight. Guys, uh, we are going to be continuing talking about uh, our Star Wars uh, look back at all of the films as we're getting ready for Star Wars Episode 7, The Force Awakens. But before we do that, we had a really big trailer that came out, and that happened during Comic-Con. We had a bunch of them. But uh, the one we're going to talk about tonight, before we jump into anything else, is the Batman v Superman trailer. But before we do that, I need to introduce the guys hanging out with me in the 602 Club tonight. And Bruce, it is great to have you back here in the 602 to talk some Star Wars. Yes, I am so ready to talk about Star Wars and uh, have some death sticks. Star Wars, <laughs> we're always talking about Star Wars. Yeah, all right, John Mills. Uh, if just save me, just come on, bro, make me what, stop. Save you. See, I have actual death sticks, Bruce. Oh, I, I have with me candy cigarettes. Oh, that, nice. And yeah. so I, you know, now you're making me want them, and I, I, they're out of reach. So, well John, played, you said sir. You you're were turning quit. me to the dark side. <laughs> you told me you were gonna quit. Oh, come on. Candy cigarettes. I can't walk away, man. <laughs> it's my one vice. So sweet. Oh, oh. man. Oh, goodness. Well, <laughs> Sweet Carolina sugar. Oh, so nice. Yeah, so good. So good. Ah, uh, goodness. That leads into another song, too. I'm just going to stop. Mm-hmm. Batman v Superman trailer. What did you guys think? Uh, first reactions watching through it. I, I was unfortunately not at home. I was actually on a ferry in Seattle because it was my birthday that day, and I'm on the ferry trying to watch this trailer on my phone. <laughs> so, yeah, it wasn't quite the same as everybody getting to watch it, like, you know, on their TVs or their computers. So what did you guys think? I thought it it was insane. It uh, Well, you know, you're saying about being on the ferry. You know, anytime these things come out, it's always when I'm at work, and, and I have to go <laughs> and close my office door, and I can't pump up the sound too loud or anything, and I got people knocking on the window, but... I mean, it, so I had to watch it a couple of times just to get it, but it, it was 
it was, you know, as a kid watching Super Friends and reading comics after that, I used to think, wouldn't it be great to see Superman and Batman in a movie together, but that will never happen. And then to see that trailer blew me away. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, as long as we were all away from home, I was actually in the car on the way to see the Minions movie uh, with the family. And I, you know, I'm looking at my phone and um, I, I see the announcement. And I'm like, oh, I got to do this. And it was some slow sell spot. Oh, so I'm hate sitting that. there and it kept stalling, like as Holly Hunter's talking. And I'm like, ah, shush, shush, shush. I got to try this. Respect I the hunter. Come on, well, I, Internet. I had, I had to restart it so many times. That on the last go, thank goodness it worked because I looked at my wife and I said, okay, I promise you, this will be the last time you have to hear this opening. If it doesn't work, I will wait until we get home. And fortunately, it worked. I was giggling by the end of it. It's a fantastic trailer. I, so my wife is, is huddled there with me as, as we're on the ferry and we're watching it together. And, and, and she's a fan of this stuff as well. Um, I mean, not as ardent, obviously, as I am, but she likes this stuff, which is great. And so she's watching it with me and... and it just was blown away as much as I was. It just, it looks like everything that I wanted. I, I felt, I just felt so vindicated personally. Um, I think Zack Snyder completely gets these characters. I, I think that um, they're using all the things that people might have had an issue with and, and Man of Steel to create a really interesting story with Superman and with Batman and, of course, Wonder Woman. And I... That was one of my biggest freakout moments. Forget Batman and Superman. Wonder Woman was on screen, and she was kicking some ass. Looked awesome. Yeah, she wasn't in it for very long, but what she was in there for was pretty cool. Like uh, giving us a taste of her uh, clanging the the gauntlets and having the big explosion afterward. I was kind of like, oh, that's nice. That's pretty cool. And she takes that one hit and she smirks at the end of it. It was very sort of like Bruce Lee esque. Where it was like, ah, you hit me. Now you suffer. I was like, yeah, all right. Getting in the mix of things. That was nice. Yeah, it looks like maybe she'll just be in maybe one big battle scene. I, from the trailer, it doesn't look like you know we saw different angles or different situations she would be in. But, yeah. uh, I mean, the movie is called Batman versus Superman. But the thing I really liked about the trailer was the different approach that they're taking with Superman as compared to the old movies where Superman shows up to the world, everyone accepts him. But in reality, you have somebody like that comes in the world, people are going to freak out. And it's just like what Martha Kent says, you know, people are going to hate those things that they don't understand. And I think that's a really good, interesting, realistic take on what it would be like if somebody from Krypton with those kind of superpowers were in this world. People are not going to readily accept them. I liked that this trailer mimicked the Man of Steel trailer, that they had one of the Kent parents say something that everybody was like, what? Which, you know, that conversation continues, but the same thing happened in the Man of Steel trailer when Paul Kent was like, you know, maybe, to Clark's question, should I let them just die? And in this one, you know, she she's saying, you don't owe this world a damn thing, you know, yeah. you never did. And my guess is that she follows that up with another statement um, about something else uh, going along with that. But I just thought it was really interesting because... It also, I think it respects how a mother feels when their child is attacked, you know, for no good reason. She knows her son. She knows what he was trying to do. And I'm sure she's feeling defensive about her son and the fact that people are attacking him when he did the only thing he could do, which was try to protect as many people as possible on his first day on the job, fighting, 
you know, more than one super person at a time. Yeah, and I think that's fair. And I think also that if the trailer is any indication, if we get something that truly plums the depths of what is, uh, you know, the themes that they're going for, like truly gets into the nitty gritty and the trailer has me every, you know, gives me every reason to believe they will. But this is the type of sequel that can sort of retroactively redeem certain people's lower opinion of Man of Steel, if that makes sense. Like yeah, when you definitely. come out of a, a movie that's warmly but not greatly received, and then you have a sequel that builds and expounds on that story. Yeah, the example I would go to actually is Halloween Two, um, because when they introduced the uh, you know the the revelation uh, in that movie, spoiler alert, but the movie's like forty years old. So, but when they have the big spoiler that um, Jamie Lee Curtis is actually Michael Myers' sister who was spirited away, like that goes back and informs the first one so that now when you watch the first one, it actually makes it even more thrilling and interesting. And uh, so I think that this movie very much shows the potential to go back and raise the, uh, the opinion of Man of Steel up for a lot of people. Well, what I like about this too is I got to say, you know, Man of Steel does a great job of telling a complete story arc, you know, in that movie for Clark becoming Superman, you know, putting on the suit and, and getting to that point, kind of getting him to the place where we know he's going to be. Um, But this one is just continuing the story, but not so much in the way that you're like, oh, like I had so much left over from like my example would be the Spider-Man films that the uh, amazing Spider-Man uh, there were so many questions you're kind of left with at the end of the first one that you're, you you feel like you have to see the next one because you just want some questions answered. What I like here is they're just using the thematic story elements that they've been they crafted in the first one to help inform the second one. So I, I really really like that. I think that's great storytelling. Um, and you know if you're gonna create a cinematic universe, I think that's the best way to do it. Films need to feel standalone enough, but at the same time, um, be connected enough that uh, you know you feel like you're rewarded for going to see each you know new film. And so, uh, the thing that surprised me, and I watched this a few times today to kind of get ready for us talking about it, Bruce seems to be talking to Wonder Woman, to Diana, when he's talking about that this person has the ability to destroy the entire planet and he has to be stopped. It felt like to me he was talking to her and I thought that was really interesting because I think she's going to be the one, uh, as uh, Snyder has said, she's the gateway drug for the Justice League and that somehow I think maybe she might be the one to help turn his opinion somehow. Um, so I'm really interested to see that. That's why I think the dynamic between these three is going to be really interesting because they are the trinity of DC Comics and the ones that everything's built on, especially when you talk about the Justice League. So it's great that they're all three in this film and that she may have a small part, but it seems like to me she might actually be pivotal even though her role is smaller. And I think that's uh, – talk about a cool and, – and getting that too for because – she said at Comic-Con that one of the things she said is that she's sophisticated as a character and she has a lot of emotional intelligence. So putting that together, I was like, okay, she's going to be the one that helps bridge the gap between these two guys. 
mm. and and bring them together and help them see as Alfred's saying, he's not our enemy, you know. Um, and I love that. I I feel like I I don't know if I'm the only one who called this, but that Bruce Wayne had lost uh, a Robin already, and yeah. and so I love that you know that he already has lost the Robin. And, and you can tell why he would be so bitter in this world. So, all in all, this is a fantastic trailer. And um, I liked Man of Steel, so I don't have a lot of trepidation going into this film thinking, oh, well, probably won't be good. I, I, I have every intention of thinking this is going to just be, you know, brilliant. Fair enough. Fair enough. I th- This is, I can tell you that... Uh, uh, everybody I've talked to that was even lukewarm on Man of Steel saw this trailer and is hyped up for it. So it did exactly what a trailer is supposed to do, which is everybody wants to go see it now. So good job to them. Yeah, and and good job for not giving too much away, you know, in the trailer. You know, just giving you the enough to whet your appetite and it and just really make you ask questions instead of like the Terminator trailer where it gave away the biggest plot point of the movie. Yeah, and totally ruined it for you um so well before we uh, jump into uh, episode two just kind of want to remind everybody uh, where they can find us i'm matt rushing on twitter uh we've got kessel junkie john there on twitter Woo-hoo. and we've got admiral underscore rex there on twitter as bruce uh you guys can find us there we're also at trek.fm online uh we're at trek fm on facebook we're on we're at trek fm on twitter we're all over the place, guys. So, uh, and of course, this isn't the only show we do in the network. So, if you haven't checked out all the other twenty shows that we have, check those out at Trek.fm. Now, guys, um, episode two. Um, we did the episode one experience, but for me, the episode two experience was even bigger. So, I'm kind of interested in hearing about you know y'all's first time seeing this film and and what that was like for you bruce this was an interesting film for me to see for the first time it stands out more than any of the other star wars movies and one reason is because i actually read the leaked script weeks before it came out bruce how dare you i'm so sorry um, but I'm not sorry because first of all, when I read the script, I didn't know if it was the actual script or not. So I was going into that. Oh, it might, might not be. I thought it probably would be cause it seemed, it, it just seemed right. Like it would be something George would write. And when the movie started and the first couple lines of dialogue happened, I realized, Oh my gosh, this is that script. I actually know this story. And I don't know why, but because I knew the story, it just made it so much better to watch this movie because I knew what Mm. was going to happen. And now this is different from what we talked about last time when I started reading the episode one novelization. It was a different experience for me because I was expecting more of the scenes that were in the novel, which were not shown in the movie. So there was some disappointment. But going from the script to what it actually is going to be in the movie and seeing that movie – it just made it more intense. Like, like I could maybe concentrate on more and I'm hearing the story for a second time, but I was getting so yeah. excited that I really had to use the bathroom. I, I had to, <laughs> I had to pee so bad. And this is why I remembered it 
because I was sitting there the whole time saying to my wife, I've got to go so bad, but I can't leave the theater. Even to the point when the movie ends, I'm not going to leave during the credits. I have to hear that music all the way through. <laughs> but man, once that ended, I, I ran to the bathroom and all was good. He <laughs> turned into Austin Powers at the end. <laughs> yeah, baby. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh. Yeah. Oh, wow. Well, uh, for, for my first time, uh, episode two will always be the movie that I remember, um, not just for being you know a Star Wars fanatic, but it was the first movie where uh, we bought tickets digitally before the showing. So oh, there yeah, was no yes. camp out factor. And we went, of course, to a midnight showing. It was my two cousins. Uh, they were brother. They are brothers, and and myself. We went to the midnight showing. Packed house. Everybody was there. I remember the theater manager coming up to the front and saying, "So, what does everybody think about the title?" And some people were playing along. Like some people were like, "Yay!" And some people were like, "Boo!" And then one guy in the back just goes, "Just start the damn movie!" <laughs> and the rest of us said, "Yeah, what that guy said." Uh, I can honestly tell you, um, there, there's a little bit of a heartstring story uh, with the movie where that was very cathartic. But overall, my reaction to the movie at the end, my cousin, uh, Robert, who was there with me, said it best, where as the movie ended, he said, I honestly don't know how he's going to top this for Sith. Well, not he didn't say Sith, but for the next one. And I looked at him and I thought about it for a second. I was like, yeah, that was... That was really satisfying. And like we just basically spent the next half hour talking about how it hit all of the notes that we wanted. We really liked the pacing. We really liked the action. We really liked where it went. And so like I came out, you know, rip roaring happy with this, like right out of the gate. Same here. Same here. I remember uh, going to my parents' house because they were babysitting and they said, So how was it? I'm like, it's the best star wars movie ever which is weird how time goes on it's like but now i don't yeah. look at it that way anymore sure sure yeah well for me i'm I'm like you john um this was my first time for a star wars movie you know getting the tickets digitally and um i did something i've never done before and i'll never do again but i saw a movie six times in one day so I i'm started, still trying to work out the math on that yeah that's, i started with the midnight showing so first part of the day and it was it was so much fun because we uh i was i was one of the biggest screens in dallas uh actually it was the biggest screen in dallas and i was in line obviously uh for a very long time and surrounded by these great star wars fans and this guy had made an obi-wan costume himself that looked so good it looked like he stepped out of the movie and and we're awesome. just hanging there. Yeah, so I'm 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 hanging out with Obi Wan Kenobi the whole time. He even had one of the Force effects lightsabers and everything. So oh yeah, guy Those was legit. Awesome. Um, so saw the movie, then went to bed, got up, uh, was at the theater, uh, and we only had one theater in Dallas that had digital screens, which was a big deal because this yeah. was obviously the first movie to be filmed digitally on digital film and. And then released that way as well. And so I alternated between screens all day. And so I would, you know, watch it in one and then go get in line in the other. I watched it all day. My friends came to the very last show and I was sitting with them. um, And they were like, how can you still be watching this movie? And I'm like, because it's so good. Um, 
And then I remember too, I, I had to go to the bathroom. I'd seen it, you know, five times by this point. So I, I, I go out and the film critic, one of the big film critics in Dallas who worked on the TV station that my mother loved to watch was out there. And I, I stopped and talked to him and he didn't really like the movie that much. And I told him my story and I ended up being on the news that day. Uh, huh. Yeah, so for for being the crazy geek who had yeah. seen the movie, you know, like four times already, and it was like you know, three in the afternoon. So, uh, yeah, that was an experience that will never be topped, just because it wasn't as expensive then. And I was like, this is a yeah. one time deal, and it's Star Wars, so I'm doing it. I, I have a question for you. What did you eat through the day? Did you eat nothing but movie concessions through the day, or did you take like a lunch and a dinner break? Actually, um, you know, I'm trying to remember. I I actually did you out from so much soda. Yeah, no, I I think that I was able to leave the theater for enough time to pick something up. That or somebody brought me something. Actually, I either that I, either one of those things happened. I can't remember. It's obviously a long time ago now. That was my episode two experience, and I you know obviously that can't be topped. And I would probably never do that again. But it was Star Wars, and, you know, as far as we knew, this was going to be the last trilogy we ever got. So, you know, I I figured I'll never have this opportunity again, you know? So you seize it, and I did. So, uh, yeah, six times one day, uh, midnight to, you know, after midnight the next day. So, (laughs) Wow. Wow. So That's dedication, man. That is dedication. So at that point, would you say that you liked it better than episode one? Yeah, I did. I mean, you know, geez, nothing at that point could have topped Yoda fighting and just Mm. the movie in general, you know, everything about it was I I felt like in a lot of ways then I felt like it was a step up. But, you know, as I look back, my rankings are a little bit different now. I I actually have a lot more respect for episode one than I used to, Um, you know, I as my fandom has grown and I've gone deeper into the saga, I, I think, yeah, there's just a, been a lot that's changed about a, the way I think about them in general. And so I actually kind of like all of the Star Wars movies. There are just a couple that I, I hold in a little bit higher regard than the others. So, sure. Yeah. Watching this movie the other night, my wife and I, we, we watched it again and I was rewatching some of it today and... I was really struck by the the fact that Anakin is this kind of wonderkin, um, you know, and this whole idea that, you know, he knows from the moment that he reaches the temple in the Phantom Menace that there's something special about him. You know, uh, Qui-Gon's already kind of mentioned that. Um, I think he picks up on the idea that there's something special about him. Um, And... I'm pretty sure he's heard thrown around in the last 10 years of his training, the chosen one. How much has that got to screw with a kid just in general? I mean, you, yeah. you know what I'm saying? I, I, I do. And something that, that I've, I've thought about, uh, you know, in the, in the intervening years is everybody always says, you know, write what you know, those sorts of things. Uh, the prequels, and I think it really started to come into focus with episode two, the prequels are the most autobiographical uh, works that Lucas has done. Because if you follow Anakin's arc, he comes onto the scene, nobody's seeing him coming, and then he's a wonderkind 
but he doesn't know what to do with it, and he's overwhelmed and feels a bit trapped. So episode two is sort of Lucas communicating how it felt, I think, to have burst onto the scene with American Graffiti and then Star Wars. And, you know, he's he's basically just this young Turk out of film school, and all of a sudden he's regarded as, you know, like king of the world. And I, I think that that definitely informs where he took the Anakin character. And I think also, you know, just the fact that Obi-Wan calls out his arrogance. And Yoda says, you know, he's like, tut, tut, you know, all of the Jedi are being arrogant right now. And I, I took that as sort of like a little nudge on, on Windu in that scene. But I, I think that that scene in specific really lays out that Anakin is arrogant and it is a character flaw, but how can he not be since, like you said, he's been told, you know, you're the savior, you're a great guy, you're going to be fantastic all the way through. How does that not sort of like warp your thinking about yourself? Yeah, when a human being's told they're Jesus their whole life, but they're not really Jesus, doesn't it means they can't handle it, you know? <laughs> right. Yeah, <laughs> and there's sort of an can't overload situation. Saviorship. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's it's also saying, okay, yeah, you're Jesus, but you're not. You got to play by our rules. You're you're not ready yet. And it's like how Oh, that's you know, true. You're, he's constantly being held back. Of course, he mentions that several times and then he goes back to episode 1. He's a slave. He doesn't have control of his life. He can't. Of course, he's a kid, but, you know, his mother is held back. He goes to the Jedi Temple. He's held back. He's got all this ability, all these things he can do, but he, you know, you've got to hold back. You've got to play by our rules, and that that can mess with you. That's a great point. It reminded me, uh, honestly, I think this speaks even more to today, of this Anakin has this sense of entitlement because of who he thinks he is. And in some ways, who he's been told he is, and and at the same time, Obi Wan is is basically trying to say, no, you have to earn that. You know, all Jedi do, no matter who they are. Even Yoda had to earn this. You know, and and so Obi Wan's just trying to raise him up and in, in the way a child should be raised, so that you know when he is off yeah. on his own, he he's not going to go nuts. You know, you know. Uh, it- I, I'm glad I'm glad you said that because I think that if there's any failing uh, on on the part of Obi Wan, especially in the context of this film, is that he isn't enough of a father figure. He isn't enough of a steady hand, and you know, like obviously, it's ten years later. You just see him, you know, take Anakin under his wing in Episode One, and then in Episode Two, Anakin's basically on the verge of being a Jedi, but. Anakin's behavior is directly traceable back to Obi-Wan. And I think they call it out specifically in the novelization. Uh, there's sort of like a um, a mixed message, a mixed signal that that Obi-Wan sends to Anakin. Because, and they had, you know, it was so funny in the preview and in the movie where Anakin jumps out of the speeder to fall down and, and grab Zam Wessel, right? And Obi-Wan, you know, sort of like chides him and is like, oh, you know, gosh, you can't control this kid. When Obi-Wan, just mere moments before, jumped out of, you know, a, a 60 billion floor skyscraper to grab onto a <laughs> droid that he had no idea of where he was going. And it's like, Obi-Wan's setting an example that he doesn't want Anakin to follow. He, you know, he's basically saying, do as I say, not as I do. Yeah, and, and I think that's, know. but I think part of that is, is that Obi-Wan's earned that because he's a Jedi Knight, you know, and 
and yeah, but part of being a parent is, is yeah. showing the, having the example um, for your kid, right? But at the same time, I also see part of I think what happened with Obi Wan was he wasn't enough of a father; he was too much of a brother. Yeah, and yes. that was the big difference because you know Anakin needed that firm hand; he needed to be taught what was mm-hmm. right, and and he needed to kind of have that humility instilled in him and that patience instilled in him as a Padawan. And you can tell that's what Obi-Wan is trying to do. You know, Anakin's just in those turbulent teen years where he's, he's being petulant and it doesn't help that all of his life he's been told, Hey, you're special, you know? And, yeah. and so again, he feels like he should be treated in a certain way. Um, he he has this self-importance about himself. He has this huge sense of entitlement that I I am the chosen one, therefore I should already be a, a Jedi Knight. You know, basically that's what he was saying to Padme. You know, Obi-Wan's just been holding me back. I'm so much more powerful than him. I should already be a Jedi Knight. At the, you know, like he feels like yeah. he's entitled. And what a what a interesting message, especially as we moved into this new century um and as we move forward in it because talk about that arrogance it's definitely a flaw more common in people even the older ones not just the younger ones so yeah yeah no, that, that that's that's a valid point i think also i mean the 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 theme of the father figure of course echoes throughout you know all six films and i think that an interesting parallel that that's hard to overlook is you have Django and Boba and I think that for me it's endlessly interesting to compare you know the way you see Django raising Boba which is you know a really strict but very like it's almost like Boba Fett gets the type of uh you know childhood that Anakin should have you know granted he, he has to grow up really quick you know after this movie but Boba Fett sort of has the father figure that Anakin should have had because he should have had a a very strict father figure in his life that said, okay, no, all right, this is how we're, you know, and not, not let him run rampant because, you know, again, Obi-Wan sort of like chuckles at his, at Anakin's indiscretions. Uh, like you said, like you know, like he's a big brother, and so well, I think that the I think the Django parallel is very very interesting with Obi Wan. And even when Obi Wan brings up his concerns to the Council, the Council treats him with this this like, but he's the chosen one, so just let it go. You know, that's what Mace says. But isn't he the chosen one? You know, uh, and it's it seems like. The only one who's kind of on his side in that conversation that was so important to him about when he's trying to talk about his Padawan, Yoda again says, the council is confident in its decision. Yeah. He doesn't say, I'm confident in our decision. He says, the council is confident. And yeah. he agrees with Obi-Wan that the arrogance is flowing through the Jedi, even the older ones. And so, I again, picking up on those little hints that Yoda gets what Obi-Wan's laying down, but he he's on the outs in some ways. Like he he doesn't have the ability to um sway the council, uh, I feel like, and and to kind of back him up. And I thought it was really interesting too because 
what Obi-Wan's trying to instill in Anakin is wisdom. He has all the knowledge he needs, but he hasn't been able to push that into wisdom, as Dex says. You know, I would think the Jedi would yeah. have more respect between, you know, between knowledge and <laughs> wisdom, you know. So yeah. uh, I think that's a really interesting thing because Anakin has it all in his head, but it hasn't made its way to his heart, you know. And uh, that's where the disconnect is. Um, and that's where the arrogance comes in because he doesn't have anything to temper his power. And that's what Obi-Wan's trying to instill. And I got to give it to Obi-Wan. He, I don't think he planned on having a Padawan anytime soon right after becoming a Jedi Knight. It got thrust upon him. Well, he, he took it. He, <laughs> so, yeah. uh, no, don't give him that out. He took it on because he made the promise to, to Qui-Gon. Yes, and but, but I still don't think that was... I mean, no, he definitely he definitely yeah. wasn't. What he should have said was he he should have insisted that he be yeah. taken on by somebody yeah. else. But yeah. you know, of course, he later says, "I thought I could train him just as well as Yoda." Yep. I was wrong. Yeah, but he's taken. Spoiler alert: that happens in Return of the Jedi. But he's taken on the Chosen One, which it's not like oh, he's just taking on a Padawan. He's taking on the Chosen One. That's a huge responsibility. I mean, did he really yeah. feel like he was up to that task? But but it also calls into question the council itself because couldn't the council have said, "Fine, we'll train him," but. Uh, not you, pal. Somebody else has to take this kid on. You know, like, why Why didn't the yeah. council step in and say, you're not ready, okay? We'll, we'll, we'll take yeah, care of Yeah, I never this. understood that, because you would think Yoda or Mace or somebody would have trained the Chosen One and not, oh, Obi-Wan, who hasn't trained anyone, who now lost his master. So, yeah, you take the Chosen One. Yeah, you just became a knight, and we give you a kid. Here you go, buddy. Yeah, it's but a two-for-one day. I think it ties into their whole, uh, I think, core philosophical problem with the Jedi is their their uh, reliance on the will of the Force. Like, they're, they're not... The Council seems not to take the opinion that their actions are going to have consequence. that basically it'll all work out the way it's supposed to no matter what. And in a sense, I guess it does. But I think that if the Council had... had acted differently it would have worked out the same way but probably a little bit nicer for all involved if that makes any sense like they 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 chose path a when they really should have chosen path b and i think that 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 first splitting point is where they gave anakin to obi-wan yeah in some ways um they've become so calvinistic that they don't realize that there's also free will. You get to make right. choices, and those choices have consequences. And yeah, it all might kind of, it'll all work out for the plan in the end of the Force, but you also have to make the best choice as well, you know? And right. so, yeah, that's a very, I love that thought. And again, it kind of goes to, there's so, there's so many different types of spiritual themes that run through the series. Sure. And, you know, George is very, smart in the way that he crafts that so i really like that um well i wanted to talk to you guys uh, watching through the movie i was struck specifically this time because we've talked so much of especially about qui-gon when we did episode one um and then of course seeing some more of qui-gon and his impact through the clone wars i really feel like obi-wan is so much like his old master especially in this movie 
and he is differentiating himself too with the, the way that the rest of the Jedi kind of work. And and for me, it's it's all encapsulated in the scene where he goes to see Dex. Uh, and I love that because Obi Wan has friends in low places. You know, he yeah. he he trusts people and their experience in life and their wisdom about life that I feel like the other Jedi have kind of missed. You know, they're in their ivory tower, and Obi Wan's a man of the people. He, you know, right? Uh, I I love that about this character. Well, I, I think Dex also was a welcome return to now. Again, I I. I really like, I love episode one, uh, you know, listen to the previous episode where we were discussing it and you'll, you'll know that. But I think that episode two, Dex in specific, represented a move back towards some of that whimsy that we all enjoyed so much about the original movies. Dex is a character that is just fun to have in there. He doesn't, you know, the character itself serves a purpose. The character itself needs to interact with Obi-Wan. But having a four-armed, you know, diner owner chef, yeah, <laughs> like that's that sense of, oh, okay, this is kind of zany. I kind of like that. This is this is whimsical. This is somebody walking in one day and saying, eh, yeah, okay, he'll just, he's a diner owner. And he's got four arms. Okay, great. And they just make it happen. And it's like, that's... You know, I, I like that. That's uh, Dex has always been. Actually, I have his action figure around here somewhere, but um, he's always been one of my favorite characters as a result. Yeah, and the environment is. You know, the diner's a fun place. Yeah. The the droid waitress, the whole the whole aspect, even the customers in the background. You know, it's it 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 is. It has that uh, whimsy to it, and it's funny too because you know he's more reliable than the library the jedi library he you know obi-wan got his information from dex than he didn't get from the the jedi library so right well and i love too you know that that all plays into the arrogance of the jedi you know uh, the librarian tells him oh yeah you know if it's not in the jedi archives it doesn't exist you know um right and it takes the the faith of a child to help Obi-Wan be able to find his wayward planet, which that is my favorite scene in the movie, I think, is when Yoda's like, lost a planet master Obi-Wan has. How embarrassing. How embarrassing. And like, he's just in, he he is that Yoda. Like I, That's the moment for me that Yoda becomes much more the Empire Yoda, where he's just whimsical and, and a little bit like, crazy professor fun guy you know like he'd be great to hang out with and i I, yeah no wonder he teaches the younglings because he's on their level and he treats them like he's on their level you know with respect and and like i just love that whole scene and yeah that's uh, that's so great to um to see that happen that again obi-wan is trusting people that the jedi just pass by you know um and uh, wouldn't necessarily give um, any time of day to. And yet, you know, like Qui-Gon, he's learned to trust the pathetic life form at this point. Yeah, I, You know, so long as you mention that scene, though, I want to I want to say that um, the in in generations, Star Trek generations, I always loved the stellar cartography room because I was like, wow, yeah. that is so yep. cool. I really loved it. This was the first movie since then where I loved the way they portrayed like a map of the galaxy 
like I remember seeing it for the first time. I was like, that is so cool. Where like Obi-Wan puts a little marble yeah, on there. Yep. And you're standing in the galaxy and can walk around and be like, well, the planet's supposed to be over there. And it's, I'm like, that is even cooler than Generations. Oh, my God. Yeah. Like, I yeah. just, it blew my mind. It was such a simple concept when you think about it. But so, so cool. What I would give to have, like, an orb of stars that I could walk through and be like, well, here you go. It's over here. And we're going to move over. Like, that's And have so that cool. music in the background that, oh. Oh. <laughs> yes, well, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. John really outdoes himself with some of the music for this film. It's this this film and the next one need complete scores. I'm so upset that they've never uh, done that. Yeah, I've so. I've complained about that for years that they have not given the uh complete scores of episode two or episode three. I mean there there are some cues from episode two that are just fantastic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the yeah. thing is it when you compare the the original music from episode two with the original music from episode one like there's really a different voice to the music. Um, it's one of the things that is always that initially irked me uh, about the film was during the battle sequence at the end, where it was really you could tell that they just spotted a bunch of stuff and stitched it together. Yeah, uh, because it's yeah. literally just battle music from episode one lifted and put together in different. You know, they took a couple of bars here that were previously recorded and, and put it together. And it, I think it makes just the loss of the of the complete score uh, even more tragic because there is some there are some original transition cues alone that are just brilliant and really he gets just this different feel of the film and one of the things that I really love about the score is it introduces this uh, sort of waltz theme that and that that comes back during all of the you know the major transitions and everything that honestly sounds a lot like vertigo so even the tone of the film the the music speaks to that sort of doomed love that obsessive love yeah. that's not a good thing and i just think it's a brilliant callback to uh, you know another movie a hitchcock movie about you know doomed love well, and that that also I would think that really speaks to the whole idea of the doom of everything that's happening. Like this is the spiral down, you know. Um, and so the the love is not just doomed, but everything's kind of doomed, you know, at this point. And um, it to me, it's, it's also really speaking to the idea. Of, <laughs> I love how going back a little bit, how Obi Wan is so wary of of politicians and you know there he says i've noticed that politicians will do pretty much anything to stay in power they'll say and do anything um and i feel like that attitude even he kind of carries over into the jedi council um when we get to episode three and so it's just really interesting because again that's a theme that's even more important now than it was then. Yeah, no, I I, I agree. I agree. But I think that, um, you know, he, I, I think that it, it all ties in together because Obi-Wan's mistrust of politicians. But there's also like the love story itself deals with this idea, I think, the way I read it, that Anakin is not doing what he's supposed to do and neither is the council. These Jedi are not 
acting the way that they're supposed to. Mm-hmm. They're not acting yeah. on their fears about the dark side. Like they, Yoda and Mace a- admit, you know, our, our ability to use the force is diminished. It's like the the dark side is messing with us. We, we're losing our mojo here, but they're not doing what they need to do to get it back. And at this, and so I think that that's you know very much illustrated by the fact that Anakin isn't focused on being a Jedi at all. He's focused on just himself and getting what he wants out of everything, and he wants it all. And I think that the Jedi are the same way. So I think that I think that Anakin's arc really illustrates that the Jedi themselves have just lost their way. They don't know what they're supposed to be doing. Well, and there's when I'm thinking about that, there's no there's no metamorphosis for the Jedi. They're stuck in that their their dogma. You know, they're yeah. stuck in protecting the status quo. And they don't realize that the status quo has changed because the government that they've allied themselves with is corrupt. And it's been corrupt for a very long time. And, you know, that's what Dooku says. That you don't realize that the, the, the Senate is now in control of the Dark Lord of the Sith named Sidious. You know, like, you don't understand how far it's gone. Like, we, you're on the edge of the knife. And yeah, that's so interesting because nobody is is where they should be, and and the good characters that you see there that are could maybe do something about it uh, are just lost in the quagmire. I mean, you know, um, they they're like like Obi Wan Yoda. They're trying to kind of push in a certain direction, but they're not getting any help, and yeah. they're too little too late at this point um so yeah it's it's really interesting to to watch that play out and um it's it's sad to see that the the council is so the jedi council specifically is so entrenched in their ways that it's only kind of those two like obi-wan and yoda who can even see that might something be wrong well i you know i don't don't take away from mace because mace is is the one that delivers the line to Yoda. You know, maybe it's time to tell the Senate that our ability to use the Force is diminished. And Yoda's the one uh, already, um, you know, uh, uh, giving a foreshadowing of his proclivity for keeping secrets from people, saying, you know, oh, no, only the Dark Lord of the Sith, you know, stands to benefit from knowing. So, like, they even know that, you know, the Dark Lord of the Sith is still in play, which calls back to the end of episode one. And, you know, Yoda's the one that's like, no, 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 don't tell him anything. And Mace, But Mace wants to go and tell the Senate. You know, the Jedi are not 100% reliable right now. We, we don't know what's going on. So Mace sort of becomes a jerk by the time, uh, you know, episode three rolls around. But in episode two, I think this is Mace's last moment of 100% being virtuous uh, before everything tips and... And he starts, you know, sliding down that slope. That's the one time in the film where I, I felt like Yoda is still a step ahead of every one of the other Jedi because he can see the ramifications of allowing that kind of information out with the Dark Lord of the Sith still in play that Mace hasn't thought about. You know, so there's just that. I liked that scene because to me it wasn't about Yoda wanting to keep secrets. It was about Yoda realizing there is only one person that's going to benefit from that, and it is the Dark Lord of the Sith. And it might bring about our doom even faster if that's where we're headed. But does well, 
I, I think I think we could probably have a whole supplemental show yeah. debating the point <laughs> of how irresponsible it is for Yoda not to give the Senate some sort of tip that, you know, hey, guys, you should maybe be on your guard and start looking at things a little more suspiciously because we think that like the Jedi are not telling the Senate everything. And that's not a good thing. I mean, if they're if they're supposed to be acting in the interest of the government and the status quo and then they're not sharing vital information that's kind of a jerk move. Well, on that part goes to the whole thing is that the Jedi shouldn't be beholden to any oh, yeah. one form no, of I government. Agree. And yeah. so, yeah, there's that whole other conversation that we've kind of had before, and it's it's just such a dangerous thing that they are trying to hold up this facade that's really become yeah. a facade at this point, and um, they're bound to it. You know, they've they've made their bed, and now they have to lie in it, and that bed gets destroyed you know by the dark side so yeah well i wanted to jump in because we we talked a little bit about the idea of the love story and this is the part of the film i think that most people came out and and they they jumped on um but i also think that a lot of people didn't necessarily understand this movie is very much camelot you know it is anakin is lancelot he's the knight who shouldn't fall in love with the girl he does Padme is Guinevere. It's the story of courtly love in the Twilight of the Republic, which is Camelot. And um, I think it really works well on that level because it has that very over-the-top poetic nature to it that is getting across that um, it's not true, it's not virtuous. You know, there's some, there is something that's not quite right here, and therefore it requires... And just that that flowery language you got to pour on it to make it seem like it's okay, you know, um, because they got to talk themselves into this. Um, they know they shouldn't be doing it. Um, yeah, and again, it just plays out specifically with the story you saw with Lancelot and Guinevere, and that their their love is going to be what brings down the Republic in a lot of ways. Yeah, but I d- I never really bought that they were truly in love. Like I, th- I just felt it was strong infatuation that, I mean, you know, Anakin had already decided he was in love with Padme before he, you know, after 10 years of not seeing her, I'm already in love with her. I'm already in, you know, I need her. I'm passionate about her. I can't live without her. I mean, it's like this huge puppy love. And, you know, people say they don't feel like there's chemistry between the two. And I somewhat agree with that but i think it's because they really weren't meant to be together they were they were isolated he never had an opportunity to really date he she never mm-hmm. really had an opportunity to really date she's so busy doing her job oh whoa whoa you forgot about paolo and his dreamy eyes they just he's an artist <laughs> yeah do you think that do you think that after he became vader he hunted that guy down <laughs> yes <laughs> paolo <laughs> yeah. You once loved Padme. I will yeah. take you out now. That's coming up in yeah. Rebels, by the way, I hear. So. Yes! In the Darth Vader comic. Yeah, that, would be, that would be perfect. <laughs> uh, no, Bruce, I'm, I mean, I'm with you because I, you know, I think what's so interesting is, is the way that this story is crafted. You know, Anakin loses his mother in this story, and then... In a non-Oedipus way, I feel like he transfers that affection 
fully to Padme that and she's going to be his love and support now in life now that his mother is right, gone. Mother towards Padme, the no father in his life towards Obi-Wan. Yeah, and right. and it, it, you know what's so interesting is I realized that this is exactly what happened to me. You know, my dad left my family when I was going into college and was in college and almost done. And I took that loss and transferred it to somebody else. And it was a big mistake in my life. I, I shouldn't have done that. Uh, it led to me uh, getting married when I shouldn't have and, and just... So I can completely understand why Anakin feels like he has this connection with Padme and why he wants her at his side and why it is a certain type of love, but it leads to that possessive type of love, not the true love, because he doesn't feel like he has anything else to hold on to. And that's really what's at play here. And that's why it doesn't ring completely true. And that's why I'm kind of glad that the love story doesn't play completely true because it's not the embodiment of true love that we would get and say what we would think of is like a Disney movie, you know, like um, where they fall in love and they're going to live happily ever. No, that's not this story. This is Lancelot and Guinevere where they bring down the Republic with their illicit love that shouldn't be. You know, I I have a first and foremost thing, you know, sharing a story like that i mean that's you know thank you you know i know that i know that there's somebody out there that and i know that we here too you know i'm not saying not us but like you know sharing <laughs> something personal like that that's you know thank you yeah, um thanks. but on top of that i you know i think that there is very much um something to that absolutely i think that anakin has an infatuation with her because she is at the beginning of the film. She's a callback to when things were simpler when mm, he was just a yeah. kid. Yes. So there's that initial hook and he probably could have worked through that, but then he does lose his mother and it becomes full on. I got to be with you. And I, I think you're, you're right, Matt. It, it, and, and Bruce, it, it, you know, it's a, it's that transference of like, uh, I need this in my life. I, I can't be with, I can't be by myself. Anakin is a person who can't, operate on his own he always needs somebody else around him and i you know i think that there is a uh, you know there is one line in the entire movie and i the thing is i saw this when they re-released it in imax if you remember this was the one of the first movies yes. they did that yep. i saw this in imax and back then they had to cut the film for imax to run it and they wound up cutting a they cut up they cut the one scene in the beginning, which was unfortunate, um, but they cut a couple of lines from the fireplace scene. And the one that they cut was where he said, you know, uh, the that kiss is uh, like a scar on my heart. It's this clumsy attempt at poetry. And I have two views about it. One, if that line had been cut before the final film was released, people react differently to the love story. Two, with it in there, I think that what makes people very uncomfortable about the Anakin Padme courtship is that it's not cool the way that the Han Solo courtship is. You know, Han and Princess oh, yeah. Leia are sort of not doing this all. sort of like, you know, quippy, sort of like sarcastic, like, yeah, well, you know what? You're a stupid head. You're a stupid. And he's like pulling her pigtails and they're, you know, 
Well, yeah, you know, and then they they find out they're in love, sort of. George thing. is doing. Um, it happened one night with. I mean, that's what he's pulling at. He's pulling at that classic "they hate each other" thing, right? That's been playing out in romantic comedies for you know years right. and years and years. Whereas Anakin and Padme are literally those. I mean, okay, look, I know that not a single guy listening to this wants to admit this, but you wrote stupid poetry for people and you said dumb things to try yeah, to prove did. your devotion to a girl and you were clumsy and you were awkward and you were awful and you if you had a time machine you would go back and kick your own self in the face i know i would i'll lay that right out there i you know i did all of those things and it's like if i could go back to that young man i would just throttle him and be like oh get your act together uh, speak for yourself john but uh, no. oh well i <laughs> <laughs> okay, now see, Bruce, I know, you know, there are outliers, there are people that, the exception that prove the rules, so of course I accept you from that, but... No, actually, I, I, I was Anakin at 20, <laughs> and when I was 30, I became Han, but keep going. There you go. Yes. There Perfect. you go, yeah. I think that's a natural progression, though, but I, I think that on some level, playing armchair psychoanalyst here, I think that on some level, there is a rejection of the love story, because people don't like to be reminded of those awkward doofuses they used to be and i think that the anakin behavior reminds you of when you were 15 and you like drew a little flower poem for you know Susie, what's her name and it's like you find something like that laying around you're like oh geez i don't i don't want to remember those things and i I think that's why i think on some level that's why people i agree 100 percent. i mean i remember watching that and feeling oh my gosh this is so awkward but that's how it used to feel when i used to try to do these yep. things used yeah, to well exactly and, and <laughs> again it's the difference between the uh the courtly declarations of love that they have here and the quick be one-liners that you have in the original trilogy you know and again that whole it happened one night kind of relationship we hate each other but we're going to get together in the end because we really love each other um and that's fun this is just it's it's a a different era of storytelling which makes sense because George is in the prequel era and we're in a different time and a different place where yeah. the republic still stands and everything is a little bit more heightened uh everything is a little bit more polished for as Obi-Wan would say a more civilized age supposedly so i think that's really where this love story takes place and and people were just expecting more of them to be like han and leia but that that's not where we are this is this is the shakespearean love story not you know the uh romantic comedy from you know the last 100 years yeah well and and that that's a great uh, just to sort of cap it off I, i remember reading an interview with christopher lee in star wars insider probably where somebody you know said you know well you know they criticize the acting in these movies right now you know what do you think of those criticisms and he he said something that i thought was and i've i've held on to the line ever since where he said people forget that method acting is a method it's not the method and he went on to talk about how the prequels especially are melodrama they're not the naturalistic this one in specific is not the naturalistic way of acting that we're used to with a Leonardo DiCaprio or a De Niro or a Bale, like losing 400 pounds or putting on 30 pounds or 
any of those sorts of things. This is supposed to be sort of like that, like you said, Matt, that sort of heightened emotion that, you know, calls back to a different time. So I, you know, I, I just want to say that like even Christopher Lee was like, people don't get it. This is supposed to be sort of that over the top sort of emotion that's being portrayed. Well, that really leads us into, I think, you know, this is a fast galaxy that we're in, in the prequels and, you know, the original trilogy, George had to invent all the things he needed to tell that story. And it was a, a more self-contained story. It's a, a rebellion story. And it takes place on uh, the outer reaches of the galaxy. You know, you're never in the... You're either in space or you're in small settlements on planets or you're hiding away in a nice planet. I mean, all of these things, it's it's very, it, it's very backwater where all the the battles are being fought. You know, this takes place at the height of the Republic. And so what George needed to tell these stories, it required new tools. And they worked alongside the old tools that he used. So, you know, for them it was using model work with green screen, with blue screen, with all of these things and putting it all together to create uh, this, this bigger more elaborate version of the Star Wars universe for where we're telling the story. And that's one of the things I love about specifically episode two. I love Camino and how amazing it looks. Um, Just the, what they do there with um, some people don't, I don't even think they realize, but there's model work in there. There's CGI, there's all sorts of amazing things going on. And, I um, was watching the behind the scenes where uh, the the voice for Tan Wee, uh, she actually had a helmet on, so they had the eyesight line, but she was actually there giving her the lines, the person who was going to be the actual voice, and then when they were doing sight lines and everything, uh, they would have her stand off the side, you know, so like they were doing all that they could, they were using the animatics, you know, that they had created so they could show the characters like when they were in a spaceship, this is kind of this is what we're you're seeing, you yeah. know. Like they were using all the tools they had to to try to try and create a film, and I that's what I loved about the original Star Wars when I was a kid because I got into the behind the scenes stuff, how George made them, and to me this was just as exciting as, and so I don't, I really get upset when people trash the prequels because George was using a new toolbox with the old toolbox to try and tell his Star Wars stories because that's what George has always done. He invents technology to tell the story the way he wants to tell it. And as he said on the extras, I push people farther than they think they can go and then they keep surprising me by making it. So I keep pushing them farther. And that's what's made Industrial Light and Magic and everything that he's created the, the greatest effects house and the place you go if you want your stuff done for your films because you know you're going to get done right. Um, and uh, I think this movie, especially in its time, even now, it still looks incredible. Just incredible. Uh, it does. And uh, I'll say that as far as the effects go, the, the one effect that... Um, because I, I, I went to Celebration 2 and I remember seeing the sort of like their effects sizzle reel. Uh, that they came up with that I think was included in the original DVD release. I don't recall if it was included in the Blu-rays, but um, it was it was what they showed at Celebration. I remember just the one thing that stuck in my brain that completely blew me away and still does 
is the fact that Oliver Ford Davis, um, who played C.O. Bibble, was not on set. And they they had another actor there in case they couldn't get him who delivered his lines. And they were like, oh, wait, OK, we can get him. And they took a, a green screen with them and they just had him match the the pace and had him walk and deliver his lines and then matted him in later. And that, to me, was was the most mind-blowing effect. I think that what people react to is that the like the CG backgrounds, when it falls apart, people forget that there were plenty of matte painting backgrounds in the originals. Now, Cloud City, when we were kids, and, you know, there's the matte painting, like, it didn't really register with us uh because they were re- they did a lot of good sleight of hand mm-hmm. um and those sorts of things but if you go back and you watch the original cloud city look of you know when they're on the the gangplank and and you know han is just getting there being greeted by lando you can see you know that it's a matte painting or in a, again in empire strikes back uh they have the commander telling the two guys you know, two X-Wings per transport or whatever, and you can tell that it's a matte painting. Orlando in Return of the Jedi walks with a matte painting Falcon. The digital matte paintings are just, you know, arguably used more extensively in these because he puts these characters in places where it's like, what else is he going to do? I mean, the Emperor arrived to the Death Star, and it's a giant matte painting. Yep, and there's like two is. lines of people on either side. And it's just, you know, for me, it's I, I think that that people just fixate too much on the effects. And to speak to the behind the scenes thing, I too like to see behind the scenes, but I I often wrestle with the question of has the curtain been pulled back too many times for us? Like the reason the first Star Wars movies really wowed us on some level is because we didn't know how the magician did the trick. Uh-huh. We believed it. We know now. Yeah, yeah but we know right. now. And so I think that's why you see this sort of like pendulum swinging back toward more practical effects and sets because we know the trick. So we can't be fooled anymore. I agree. I, you know, when I watch the movie, seeing so many behind the scenes, there's when certain scenes come up, I'm like, Oh, that's a model. I know that was green screen. I like, I know all the little bits and pieces, even to the point that they changed the, um, Anakin reaching over and touching Padme. That was digitally changed the way his hand reached over and and touched her arm or hand or something there on Naboo. And I, I think of that every time I see the scene. So I, I try to put that out of my mind, just watch the movie for what it is. But I feel like I know so much that it's almost like a director who says, I can't really enjoy a movie because I'm, rem- I'm thinking about all the things that were happening that day and all the things I was thinking of what went right and what went wrong. It's almost that same type of thought. Yeah, yeah, I can see that a little bit. Um, but I was I was thinking I just rewatched the extra the, and they were talking about the fact that they took uh, some blue screen to London and filmed for half a day with Hayden and Natalie. And then out of that, they created the droid factory sequence. Oh yeah. It just blows my mind that half a day of filming and you can create this whole amazing sequence. And that sequence still looks pretty good for today. It does. I mean, it's it's incredible the, the work that they put into that. And, 
You know, what I what I realized too is, you know, those CG artists, they're putting so much into it. I mean, you just watched the extra about creating Yoda digitally, how much work that George put them through to make Yoda. And, you know, you realize just like the Disney animators, these guys are actors. They're having to act to get the performances that they're getting out of these characters. And, you know, they're using digital stunt doubles all the time in this movie. And you can almost never tell unless you know if you've seen the behind yeah. the scenes. You, you, There's scenes there. You just don't know. That's not, uh, you know, a, a stunt double doing the stunt. It's amazing, you know. Um, so I, I think it's just an incredible amount of work that's amazing. I just want to say I, I want to get out my soapbox real quick because I've always wanted to say this. I – I get so tired of hearing people say actors on a green screen doesn't work. It doesn't allow the actors to really act and they need to be in the environment. And I say poodoo because being someone who's done acting, how many times am I done scenes or shows where I'm on a stage? I'm not in the desert. I'm not in that physical location. Lots of times I'm on a stage that's all black and I've got a black box for a chair yet I can do that scene or do a monologue without actually physically being in the location. So you can act in a green screen and do it well. That's my that's my stance on that. Yeah, Bruce, I think that's actually a really great point in that in some ways uh, the green screen acting and everything, it is back to stage work and, and using your imagination in a way that you haven't before. And, um, you know, I think – that the actors that really pulled it off well in this film, I, you know, I think of Christopher Lee in the movie and, and the way that he, he's not phased by any of it. He's just playing the part to perfection as Christopher Lee does because it's just another job of acting for him. He has no problems, you know, um, being on green screen because to Christopher Lee, green screen is just like being on Absolutely. stage. And I think that's what's so amazing. And, and um, you know, those actors that really do that well, I think uh, Ewan McGregor does it fantastically um, too in the prequels. Uh, I, I don't feel like he's ever really struggling too much with the green screen work. I think he's just sold out to the part. And um, so those characters, they really make it work. Uh, and yeah, I, I'm sure it is also a lot of fun to be the character's uh, when you do have more of a set and, and you have something there too. I'm sure that's great and I'm sure it does help. But at the same time, you know, you're an actor. Your job is to pretend to be this character and to be able to use your imagination uh, to bring a scene yeah. to life, whether there's green screen there or whether there's an entire full functioning set on the set of, you know, like The Hobbit, you know, where you have an entire set that you can walk in and out of and it looks just like reality you know so yeah i just to to piggyback on that i like i did i did go to school for for theater and one of the things was it was drilled into you uh when you would do the classes and everything you would have like maybe some boxes and stuff like that and you were taught you had to pantomime sell me on it convince me that you are in that scene and so it does you know uh, you you had to direct yourself and it was like okay how am i going to convince somebody that i'm holding a plate or, you know, uh, uh, doing some sort of, you know, zany thing with a, a feather duster or something like that. I don't have any, I don't even have a prop. Yeah, it's acting 101. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> 102, okay, maybe. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you guys are way beyond me, but 
last thing I kind of really wanted to touch on is is the dark side of this movie. And yeah, uh, I thought it was really interesting. You know, Palpatine lost Maul as an apprentice, or at least he thought he lost Maul. Um, that's a whole other what? story. Well, he lost him by this point. Days, but <laughs> um, yeah, uh, but he picks up a new apprentice with Dooku, uh, who's one of the lost 20 Jedi. And I am still a little miffed that George cut that small scene out of yep. the library scene there. Uh, because I, I just think that um, it would have meant a lot to kind of explain just a little bit about Dooku's background. Uh, because we find out through the prequel novelizations and stuff that uh, he was once trained by Yoda and then he trained Qui-Gon, obviously, we find out in this movie. And, of course, so you see this progression of, of people being taught. And I just think um, having that, I don't know, it just made it a little bit richer, kind of knowing that he'd left the Order. And apparently there's only 20 people in a 1,000 years who have left the Order. That's pretty impressive. Well, that doesn't count people that failed out as Padawans. Well, that's uh, true. But... You know, the, the one thing about Dooku's character in this movie particularly that um, I, I always debate about whether it could be handled better is obviously Lucas is telling the story as if you don't know that Dooku is going to wind up being behind everything. Well, I mean, he's yes, not, you know, right. Palpatine's behind everything, but you know what I mean. For the purpose of this movie. And as a result, the thing that... that really should have left that that library scene in where they explain the Lost 20, is I think it would have helped sell Dooku's betrayal better. And I think that I think that on some level, Lucas knew that everybody was going to sit there and, you know, Mace Windu's like, oh, no, Dooku was once a Jedi and stuff like that. And everyone's like, yeah, 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 we, we know. We saw all the previews. We know that, you know, Count Dooku's the bad guy, okay? And so I think that he tried to transfer that shock moment to uh, uh, Yoda calling him my old Padawan. I think that that would like he tried to transfer it that way, where it's like, oh my gosh, he was trained by Yoda, and it. And I remember having that reaction of like, what, really? But um, you know, I, I just I, that lost twenty scene I think would have gone more to selling the drama of Obi Wan later seeing him. As a dark, you know, as a dark lord, and saying traitor, you know, when he, when he first walks in, because we would have had more fleshing out of Dooku than uh, you know than we had previous to that. It's interesting too to watch Dooku then, and knowing that, and especially rewatching it now, the arrogance that he has, that he thinks he can take on Yoda, that he's more powerful than Master Yoda, and I just laugh every time because. To me, that scene, he gets his butt handed to him by Yoda and then pulls the whole, like, evil bad guy in a Super Raid film where you distract Superman by having to save people so you can get away because you're about to be taken down. Uh, it's, yeah, I mean, he thinks he's all badass and he's just not. I mean, he is for a lot of other Jedi, um, and at this point he was for Obi-Wan, but He's just not as as cool as he thinks he is, and I, I kind of like that he just gets it, you know, taken to him by uh, a little green frog. Yeah, I, you know, 
but I, you know, <laughs> he cares for these people. I, I think that, um, I mean, if you really want to drill down, Dooku gives away because he says, this is just the beginning. And he makes the thing fall and Yoda has to distract himself and everything. And I think that honestly, you could even take that scene and I would not put this past Lucas to be one of those important foreshadowing moments of Dooku saying, fine, you care more about them than stopping me. And I think that that's basically how the Sith beat the Jedi is through what could be described as distraction, but also uh, what Kurgan says to the Highlander, you know, like, um, oh, no, what what actually what uh, what the Emperor says to Luke, uh, you know, your compassion is is your undoing like it's. You know, like I, I think that that one scene is I don't think Dooku is playing to win. He's playing just to get away at that point. Yeah. Well, and it's it is interesting because I was thinking to myself, you know, Yoda can just force push them out of the way of that and go back to his fight. I mean, he's strong enough to do that. He doesn't have to hold the I think to force push the, the the boys out of the way real quick. I mean, the I, guy I, can take force lightning into his hand. I think that he's got the strength to be able to push the boys away. And but couldn't take, you couldn't you make the the argument that Yoda is at this point out of practice a bit? Not out of practice per se, but he's not used to going out and having a fight. You know, that is like true, yeah. And so I, this I is this is saying. him coming out of retirement. And it's a bigger fight than he anticipates. And it's like, ah, I need all of my concentration here. You know? To me, I always just felt like Yoda had won because he says, you know, he gets that arrogant look on his face. Fought well, you have my young Padawan and uh, my old Padawan. And that it was over. Like he was about to unleash hell, basically. And Dooku realizes that. And that's why he does what he does. Um, but yeah, I think you have a good point in the sense that this is only the beginning. I can't see that the compassion of the Jedi is their undoing because I think it's their lack of compassion for a lot of things that is well, their undoing. Well, I, I think that I think that their compassion for others is the wedge. I think that their compassion goes away. I certainly think so. Uh, by the time that you know the the Clone Wars are over, mm-hmm. but. I, I really do think that it's one of those initial wedges. And I think that you can burn a virtue out of somebody. And I think that that's one of the things that the Sith do. But that's sort of, you know, I think that another thing that people pick on the prequels for, and maybe even this one, is that Lucas hits on points and sort of lets you fill in between. And so in my, to borrow, uh, you know, Chris's term, my headcanon, the compassion gets beaten out of the Jedi. They get so tired of caring for other people that it's just like, they just want to quit. They're just like, ugh, and they're done. Even if it's not the Jedi in general, I think that Yoda definitely has, you know, compassions for others and will always choose to save the innocent versus fight the bad guy. Yeah. Why does Dooku, and this is, I still wrestle with this, why does Dooku tell Obi-Wan the truth? It's a good Do you question. really think that Dooku would have taken him under his wing and they would have taken out Sidious and then hopefully basically do you think Dooku thought for a while like in Dark Disciple that I need to turn to the dark side to try and take it take out what's wrong 
to actually make things right. You know what I'm saying? I, Bruce, I want to get your take on this before I blather on. <laughs> I think that Dooku thinks he is doing right and is not looking at it as light side versus dark side. I don't know if he... I mean, he is a Sith and he does know that, but I think that he wants to get... Because the job of a Sith is to then... Because take over the Sith and take the Sith leader and be the master and get a uh, apprentice. And so I think he is looking at that at Obi-Wan and by being truthful and honest, which the Jedi is, doesn't always do. Dooku thinks that, uh, honesty might get him exactly what he wants out of Obi-Wan and, and take over and push Palpatine out of the way and put the galaxy the way it's supposed to be in his view of what should happen. Just the way Anakin's been saying how, you know, it needs to take one person to make the decisions and make right in the galaxy. Yeah. No, I I think that's exactly right. I think that Dooku is arrogant enough, again, going back to the arrogance theme of of the Jedi, arrogant enough to think, you know what? I can mess around with the dark side. And you know what? I'll get powerful enough. May- hey, I'll get this guy Ob- Obi-Wan to come on board with me and we'll overthrow Palpatine. And then the galaxy can be set right and we'll burn out the corruption because the Senate just needs to go. And, we, you know, so there really is, as Kia D. Mundi says, you know, he's an idealist. And I think that, you know, idealism can blind you to the practicality of your choices. And if he's going to get an apprentice, he's going to choose Obi-Wan because it would have been Qui-Gon because Qui-Gon was his apprentice. Sure. Mm. Now, here's a question. Do you think Qui-Gon would have turned with Dooku? No. No. I think if Qui-Gon had lived, a lot of things had been different. I think that's three no's across the board then. Yeah. I think it it would have been really interesting, you know, if if Qui-Gon had survived. So much, I think, would have changed uh, for the saga because he was such a pivotal character. Um, and and I think just think of Qui-Gon being the master of Anakin. Yeah. I think he would have had a lot more fatherly influence. He wouldn't have put up with his crap the same way he didn't with um, Obi-Wan. But at the same time, he was a great master. He's compassionate and caring and definitely led by example. So, yeah, I think that that's a... That's a great question. I have one more question because Palpatine is a genius, obviously. I mean, this guy's been planning. He is playing the long game like crazy. He's been in power for 10 years now as uh, chancellor, which is a quite a long time to keep getting reelected. And he's been placing all these things in place. You know, uh, he... His plan gets Padme away. He leaves the stooge in place. He gets Anakin away with her. He, I think, and I, this is my question. Does, does Palpatine have Anakin's mother stolen, Shmi kidnapped, so that he can use that to his advantage and make sure that she dies and just put one more nail in the coffin for Anakin of turning to the dark side? I think it's, uh, I have a hard time picturing him going and meeting with a bunch of Tuscan Raiders and, and, and putting a plan together like that. <laughs> yeah. But I think it's maybe the reverse of that. I think that Palpatine was waiting for the moment that something were to yeah. happen to Anakin's mother. And then the Tuscan Raiders took her 
And then he launched his plan to get Padme and Anakin alone to play that out. Yeah, I, I think that he is a master of seizing the opportunity. I think that he is assisted. Again, May says, you know, that, uh, uh, you know, the power balance is shifting. And Dooku even says, you know, the dark side of the force clouds their vision. I think that at this point, Palpatine is firing on all cylinders. He can see some things that are coming and he doesn't necessarily need to act. He can tell that something, you know, Anakin has a couple of leverage points and he can roll with it. It later comes to, you know, bite him in the butt when the balance shifts again. But I, I think you're absolutely right, Bruce, that he, he just sort of takes advantage of something, knowing Anakin's weaknesses. And he would have done something if he had to, but I don't think that he had an active hand in what happened to Shmi, no. Yeah, for me, it's always been in my head canon that just like he has with Dooku using, you know, Jango Fett and the Kaminoans and Sifo-Dyas and all of these things that he's also, because that plan is pretty elaborate, especially as we found out in the Clone Wars, um, I, I think that the same thing happened with, with Shmi in that he just used intermediaries because nothing ever, I mean, it takes so much to get back to him. He, he's never doing it himself. He's he's making other people do his bidding. Uh, so to me, that was always what happened is that he he saw that, yeah, that this is because he knew, too, that, that the attack was going to happen on, on Padme. He's the one who suggests Obi-Wan and Anakin, um, and he's the one who set the other part of the plan. Uh, I mean, he doesn't know that Obi-Wan is going to be the one that's sent with on the mission for Django Fett. But I mean, yeah, I, he's got enough of the plan so that he's kind of manipulating the council in almost that way to do things. So any, that's just my personal headcanon. And that's why I asked the question for you guys. Well, I, I not, you know, everybody's headcanon is their own thing. But the one thing I will say to, to sort of deconstruct that, um, that sort of conspiracy theory is that, it's one thing to woo Dooku, put Jango Fett in place, and then manipulate sifo to order the clone army and do all of those sorts of things behind the scenes. But Anakin showing up when he does, it, there's, in my mind, enough of an act of randomness to make it not happen that way. You know, like, it, it's... There's not enough order to Anakin's behavior to indicate, you know, because his mother is being, his mother is captured before even the beginning of the film, really, because Anakin's already having dreams about her. So, I don't know, but I mean, you know, if that works for your head cannon, who am I to, to bust it? <laughs> well, guys, uh, kind of um, wrapping things up for you. Um, I guess it, if you had to give episode two attack of the clones a rating, uh, what would your rating be? And, and let's, let's do one on a, say a, a, either a five or a 10 scale, uh, to see where we kind of place this one. Um, and this is a tough question, I, I think. So, uh, Bruce, do you have a, a place that you might place? Do you have an idea of where you might place episode two on if that I kind did of scale? A five scale, I would say, um, 
three and a half particles of sand. <laughs> it gets everywhere. <laughs> uh, I would say. Wait, did you just get that? I, I would, <laughs> Matthew? No, I just, just. It just got funnier as I. As, yeah, the fact that he went there and it was good. Yeah. Uh, for me, I'm going to, I'm going to go full on, um, I'll go 10 scale and I will say, honestly, attack of the clones based solely on the moment you see it goes into overdrive. The moment that you see Windu's foot fall in the hallway behind Dooku at this point over. Yeah. That from that scene forward lifts it up from what it would have been, which is an eight to for me, it's a full on nine out of ten. Ah, that's awesome, man. Yeah. Well, you know, I I have been thinking about this all day. And I, I think that for me, this movie is a good eight and a half out of ten. Um I, I really I just I, I like this movie and I, I think part of it is I respond to the Obi Wan mullet. In this film, <laughs> how can you? Do um, I I wanted sadly wanted that hairdo, but I could never grow that hairdo. Um, and uh, for some reason, I thought it was cool back then, you know. But uh, Obi Wan makes it work, and um, I loved getting to see all those Jedi in action that way. Um, one minor quibble is that I feel like all of those Jedi could have easily beaten all those droids, especially when you see what they can do in the Clone Wars when they and just a few clones take on like 200 droids all the time in that show. Well, this is a practice um, round and, for them. Yeah, this is a practice <laughs> round. They lose a lot of Jedi more quickly than I would think just a, against a bunch of, you know, droids. So, uh, but that scene is just, it's so awesome. I mean, and the model that they made for that arena is so intricately beautiful. I just, that that's a great yeah. scene. So, uh, and then, yeah, Yoda whips out a lightsaber and all hell breaks loose. It's awesome. They scrambled a lot of Jedi for that fight. Yes, and there were they plenty did. that were that were out on assignment, and I would say that there are probably a fair number of Padawans in there too. So yes, that probably accounts yes. for well, sort uh, of these. Well, as we know, Barris Offy was there. Um, yeah. And uh, if you notice, if and as you look towards the Clone Wars, Barris Offy is standing with Luminara in that meeting with Palpatine. So she is witnessing the corruption from the beginning. Yeah. So that really does inform where that character goes. So check out the Clone Wars because, um, yeah, her story gets real interesting. Yes, but, it does. Uh, <laughs> Star Wars is not the only thing. Episode 2, The Awesomeness of the Attack of the Clones, is not the only thing we've been talking about at Trek FM the past week. So here is a quick look at some of the other things you've missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.fm. Standard Orbit. It, it wasn't so much, you know, some down and dirty action, you know, and, and stuff. It's more like Spock is in heaven and it's all good until he comes back, you know, that kind of stuff. <laughs> I think that's pretty, though, I think those are the lyrics. Earl Grey. We divide the ship into one of two ways. Port goes to port. I better not see any starboard guys on the starboard phaser target practice. You guys know which side of the ship you're on. The orb. Also, the original title of this episode was A Matter of Breeding, which when we talk about things feeling TNG-ish, that could have been a Riker episode. 
<laughs> the Ready Room. It's about people and feelings and emotions. It's about philosophy. It's about the future. It's about hope. It's about glory. It's about intellectual promise. That's what Axnar is about. It is not a story about pew, pew, pew. I promise you that. To the journey! I can just hear the Earl Grey people screaming, Measure of a man! Measure of a man! <laughs> and you know what I would say to that? Death wish! Death wish! Warp 5. I remember watching Broken Bow when Enterprise first debuted when I was in high school. I remember revisiting it now in full, and I had forgotten the fact that Future Guy had actually played an integral role from the get-go with Silic and the Sulaban, which we'll talk about later in the show. Commentary, Trek stars. I think part of it, you know, which is probably good, is that he's probably not familiar with what happened, you know, in, in season one of Next Gen, aside from hearing stories here and there. So he's just like, whatever, I'm just going to get the story. The 602 Club. I think he's very much recreating that THX feel. And you may di- you may disagree with it. You may not think it's, you know, it's great, but it's on purpose. He, he wants that world to be that way. Let me just say, conceptually, I agree with that. In terms of execution, that's where I think he failed. Literary Treks. It's amazing to me, as I reread these stories, how much of it... I just kind of think of as Deep Space Nine these days, even though it wasn't part of Deep Space Nine, <laughs> you know, the, the actual series. Axanar, the official podcast. It is the spirit of TOS that matters that's being captured, but it doesn't necessarily have to be the aesthetic. The aesthetic was 1966 to 1969 that had its moment, it had its time, and there's a certain amount of charm still to that. But it doesn't allow you to push the narrative forward because that type of aesthetic holds creativity back, in my opinion. Women at Warp. My absolute favorite thing about this episode is that this is a love potion only if it's between a man and a woman. They make it explicitly clear that if you touch two men or two women, they just become really good friends. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out these shows, find out what we've been talking about everywhere in the Star Trek universe, and of course, a galaxy far, far away. And you know where wherever you get your podcasts, guys, if you're an Apple user, help us out. John, what, what should they do if, if they want to help us out? Oh, give us a five-star rating. I mean, you want to. You, you will give us a five-star rating. Well, and, and you know why? It's because already right now on iTunes. We're we're a five star podcast. Twenty seven five star ratings. So Boom. I mean, you just want to be added to that number. Um, you can subscribe, and you can give us a written review. All of those things really help us out. And of course, if you're not an Apple user, guys, we're everywhere: uh, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and of course, you can stream and download the MP3 file from the website and grab the RSS link as well. You can really be a part of our family with Patreon, and uh, we are a listener-supported network, and one of the best ways that you can help us out bringing all of this content to you is to go to patreon.com slash trekfm and see how you can support us coming to you each week and bringing these shows to you. Got some amazing perks. Uh, actually, <laughs> while we were recording this podcast, got some emails about one of the perks we're working on for the special Patreon members, uh, we've got exclusive content such as producer credit, seats in the content development team. We're doing the 
uh, Patreon roundtables. You'll be getting those. You'll be hearing the different members in the master feed. We appreciate you guys so much because without you guys, we couldn't be bringing this to you. And find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. I really think the associate producers, the guys that help bring this show to you each week, um, and uh, my executive producers of uh, C. Brian Jones and Norman C. Lau, those guys are great. My associate producer, Ken Tripp, without his support, this show would not come to you, and it's all because of his work through Patreon, so really appreciate that. Guys, contact us. I mean, trek.fm slash contact. Let us know what you think about the prequels and maybe specifically what we talked about today. You could leave us a voicemail. If you didn't hear the show last week, well, you need to go listen to it because you'll know if you leave us a voicemail, you're going to get a very special gift on the Babel Conference. So look in the sidebar on the show page or go to speakpipe.com slash trekfm. Where can they find us on Twitter and on Facebook, John? Well, Matt, they can find us on Twitter at uh, TrekFM, or you can find us on Facebook at TrekFM as well. Well, and then, of course, if you want to interact with us, one of the best ways to do that is the listeners only group we call the Babel Conference. And only listeners who hear the shows know about it. So search Babel in the search field on Facebook, or you can go to our website at trek.fm and click discussion on the menu bar. And that's a great place to visit anyway, because we got the show pages, all the links for everything there. A great place to be is trek.fm. Well, guys, uh, I have to say, I, I couldn't do these shows without you because nobody wants to listen to me ramble on for over an hour and a half about Star Wars. That's what your wife says to us. (laughs) Yeah, it actually probably She is. begs us to come on. She's like, please come on the shows. Uh, Bruce, tell everyone where they can find you online. You can find me on Twitter at Admiral underscore Rex. And uh, I'm also now doing some writing on StarWarsReport.com. And I'm always in the Babel Conference. And John, tell everybody where they can find you and about your five-star podcast that everybody should be listening to. Well, uh, I can tell you that you can find me on Twitter at Kessel Junkie, K-E-S-S-E-L-J-U-N-K-I-E, or KesselJunkie.com. Uh, I've uh, gotten the writing bug again and uh, turning them out. Yes, and you, you can have. also you can find me here on this network, uh, Trek FM network, on Commentary Trek Stars with uh, Mike Schindler, which certainly is a five-star podcast. And you can also find me on another podcast uh, with my buddy Craig, uh, called Words with Nerds, where we talk about everything. You guys really do. I mean, I listen to you each week, and you guys are talking about uh, some of the strangest things that I've never heard of until I listen to your show. So, <laughs> if yeah. You don't, if you don't give us guidance, we go everywhere. Yeah, the, the tagline could just be, it's going to get weird. Yeah, I like that. I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm writing that down right now. That's going to be on a batch of shirts. Well, guys, you can find me on Twitter at MattRushing02. I'm on Instagram at MRushing. I'm also on The Orb with Christopher Jones, where we talk exclusively about Deep Space Nine. I do Literary Treks with Dan, where we talk about the books and the comics of Star Trek. Also interview authors, too, about their newest works in the Star Trek canon of books. And then you can find me on my own personal blog at 42 lifeinbetween.wordpress.com Guys, thank you so much for joining us. And until next time, may the Force be with you.